Hey, good morning. Welcome. How's everybody doing? Good? Everybody's got their mask on. I'm not talking. That. It's nice to see everybody. If you're tuning in online, thank you for clicking that uh, button and being a part of what's happening. It's good to see everybody. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here. And I must tell you, if you are a guest, thanks for being here or thanks for tuning in. And I just want to say this right now, if you're a guest, I don't normally look this good. This is a treat, all right? And so next week, I will not be wearing a sweater and a collared shirt. But there are those days where you just have to keep certain people in your household happy that you're married to. And so you can thank my wife for this little ensemble. But uh, yes, yeah, so I am very unfortunately uncomfortable, but that's all right. <laughs> it's distracting how good I look, I know. And I apologize for that right away. I want you to be able to focus on what God wants to do in your heart and not how good I look, uh, which is usually why I'm dress more appropriately. So uh, listen, we're wrapping up a series called Peace on Earth. We've gone through the 12 days of Christmas. Anybody kind of trying to do your best to keep the 12 days of Christmas going? Anybody in the room? Anybody? A few of you? Yeah. We've been, I've been doing it. I've been hard charging, been listening to Christmas music still. We got our Christmas tree up and trying to do some different things. And uh, I went hiking yesterday with some people and they were in the car and somebody was like, oh man, there's Christmas music playing. And I was like, yeah, I got four days left. Back off. I turned it up. They were so annoyed. But that's their problem. They could have walked. You know, it's no big deal. But uh, yeah, so we're, we're wrapping things up here, uh, which has been fun. And we're going to launch a new series next week on listening, uh, which I think will be uh, super irrelevant. Uh, it seems like everybody in the world is doing a great job of listening. But I don't know. We'll give it a shot. See if we can't find something that can help our everyday normal life out. Did you do something fun for New Year's Eve? Anybody? Uh, even in the midst of COVID, did you get to kind of carry a New Year's Eve tradition the same? So this is our second New Year's Eve. In I, I hold up three fingers. This is our second... Our second New Year's Eve here in Colorado, and it is hard to adjust to mountain time because, like, the whole world it, in America seems to revolve around Eastern time. So, I, I have great empathy. I'm like, man, it's like we're real people too at mountain time, but so it's kind of weird. It's weird to celebrate New Year's, but that's all right. We did uh, Chinese food. Does anybody else do Chinese food on New Year's Eve? Nobody know? We made our own homemade, it wasn't that good. We messed up. I messed up. I made it. So that's all right. But here we are today, first Sunday of the new year, first weekend gathering together, which is great. Uh, let me ask you this question. How many of you love an exclusive offer? Anybody in the room, just you love an exclusive offer. Uh, anybody in the room collect anything? You collect stuff, collectibles? Anybody have a collection of something, right? Well, if you're a collector, you generally like exclusive things, right? Something that has a short run, like one of seven, right? That's a collector's item, right? And you get that it's an exclusive thing. You know, the reality is we're kind of wired in such a way that we love exclusivity. We love that feeling of being special, right? We love it. We love knowing. I, I went through, um, early on in my career, I went through uh, a network, a coaching network for pastors and uh, uh, wonderful stuff, learned a lot of things and grew a lot. But one thing that was super annoying about this network was the way that they marketed it, right? They just played on this love of being exclusive. Everything was an exclusive offer, only available if you're in the network or only available if you've been through the advanced coaching. And the advanced coaching is only available if you've done this. And, and I remembered, like I could see right through it. I was like, this is so dumb. Like I'd sign up for something that was exclusive and then I'd show up and there'd be like 8,000 people there. I'm like, this is not exclusive. 
exclusive. Wait a second, right? But I would always fall for it, you know? I would always, always fall for it because there's just something about wanting to be exclusive. Like, you just want to be special. Uh, I remember one time I was in the D.C. area. I was down in Virginia, and uh, I, was, I was there on some work stuff for a nonprofit. I was visiting uh, somebody that uh, was doing some work for us. And then we were just taking some time. So my son went with me, Judah and I. So we drove down there. And uh, so we go down to the city. We're going to spend a week down there in D.C. doing some different things. And all of a sudden, I'm down there, and I get this interesting email. And uh, this email is just from a woman who I'd never met. I'd heard her name before in New England, but I never met her. And she says, oh, I work with, with World Vision. This was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so. She says, I work with World Vision. And uh, Rich Stearns, our president, is going to be in town. And somebody that I knew uh, had recommended that Rich get together with you. And Rich would like to have lunch. He's going to be here on this day. Which is Now, for those of you that don't know, Rich Stearns was the president of World Vision for many years. He was also the president of Parker Brothers. Um, like, he's a big deal. Like, I'm not a big deal. He was a big, big deal. I mean, World Vision's like the largest, it's like a billion dollar nonprofit, you know. But I'm wise to this stuff, right? So I get this email and I'm thinking, yeah, it, he wants to have lunch with me and 800 other like pastors, leaders from New England. And I'm down in Virginia. But there's this nagging side of me that's like, well, I've been trying to get a hold of him because we were launching a conference and I wanted him to come and potentially speak. And, uh, and so... I was like, I don't know what to do. So I just kind of thought I'll ignore it. And I, I sent it over to my wife, Wendy. I said, what do you think about this? She says, well, you got to check and see. Because like, I was like, Wendy, I don't want to fly back for a day if this is just like what is always exclusive, you know. So made a, made a phone call, spoke to the woman. She says, no, no, he just wants to have lunch. And it was just kind of a weird thing. And so now I feel like super important, right? Like, this is awesome, that's right, he wants to have lunch with me. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I actually get a plane ticket. I leave my son in Virginia, <laughs> fly, fly back to New England uh, for about four hours, uh, have lunch with Rich's wife, great guy. He ended up coming and speaking at our conference. Uh, and, and it was wild. I felt so cool. Like, I felt like this is awesome. Like, it was such a, I felt so special. We love that feeling. And you'll have, you have those moments in your life where it's like something comes your way and we just love it. Now, the big question is, why? Why is that? Why is it that we love those things that make us feel special over and against someone else? Why is it that we love this idea of, of being a, an exclusive member of something, right? Well, here's what I think it is. I think we love the idea of exclusion, uh, of exclusivity, excuse me, because we are scared to death of being excluded. Like at the end of the day, it's this weird, vicious cycle in our lives that we are so afraid of being left out. We're so afraid of being excluded that we are willing to exclude others so that we don't have to go through that, right? Like we're willing to create systems and structures and economics that we are included in because we are so afraid of being excluded. And it's like a little drug, right? We just love it. Look at how special I am. I get into the aviators club for American Airlines, which I don't, I'm not, I don't ever get to go unless, unless I'm traveling with somebody that's in it. And that'll ruin you for travel, right? Like you find out there's these, there's like Disneyland in every airport. Did you know this? It's like behind these glass doors that you can't get in unless you have like this card that says you can come in. And it's like the world is back there for all this free stuff. I mean, I've been able to go back there like once or twice. I'm like, this is amazing. I'm so much better than everyone, right? <laughs> don't act like you don't. You ever get bumped up to like first class and all the riffraff goes behind you? You're like, yeah, keep it moving, keep it moving, right? And you know, you know you're only gonna fly in that first class like that's it, like once maybe, right? 
But we just love it because we're afraid of it. Now, here's the problem, though. Exclusion wounds, right? I mean, that's why we don't want to be excluded. That's why we're afraid of it, because it hurts. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to be the last one picked for kickball. Not that that ever happened to me every day of my life, right? We don't like to not make the traveling team. We don't like to be excluded. We know that it wounds. And here's the thing. As human beings, I think our consciousness has developed over the last 30, 40 years that we recognize the nature of exclusive thinking and how it does wound people. And you know how I know this? Because you can no longer go to school in a classroom with other fifth graders, throw a birthday party, and only invite certain people from your class, right? If you have kids and they go to elementary school and you want to invite everybody in your class to the birthday party, you find out very quickly there's a rule in the classroom, right, that says everybody gets invited if you throw a party. Because we know that exclusion wounds. Y'all remember Valentine's Day in school? Yeah, that was like the best day ever. Well, who thought of this? But you make a little box and you drop off Valentine's and candy all day long and then we send your kids home. It's amazing, right? You get those little like kid antacids those shaped like a heart, right? <laughs> they're like nasty. They're stale and you don't even know they're stale. Oh, they're supposed to taste like that, right? We're still eating those candy hearts from 1977, right? But it, you would get this big box and you'd get all these little Valentines. And we love Valentines, right? They just make you feel special. At the end of the day, you're really not that special because everybody in the room is getting the same Valentines because if you bring one, you got to bring one for everybody because we know that if you were to like, get a Valentine for everybody but leave one person out, that wounds, that hurts. So all around us in our like everyday normal lives, we kind of get that. We get that this idea of exclusion based upon anything, based upon race, based upon gender, age, uh, based upon sexuality, based upon economics. We know innately that there's something, uh, I'll use the word wrong about that. I know that we don't like to use that word, but we just, we, we know it. There's something icky about it. There's something not right. It wounds. But what's fascinating to me is that religion hasn't got that memo. <laughs> Like somehow we haven't opened up that email. It's still sitting in our inbox that exclusion wounds because unhealthy religion, right? Religion that doesn't bind up the brokenhearted, religion that doesn't reunite us with our creator, it thrives on this idea of exclusivity and our fear of exclusion. It thrives on it. You're gonna be left out. You're gonna be left behind. I mean, let's face it. We've sold millions of books based on a concept called left behind, Like, don't tell me that it's Sandy. I'm sorry. That was an inside joke. Sandy loves those books. No, I'm just kidding. She doesn't. Uh, but like, it, it, we, we, we've sold this. And why does left behind work? Is it because it's true? My personal opinion? No, it's not true. But it works because we are scared to death of being left out. And fear is powerful. And so, but what's what's so bizarre is that we know this as human beings. We know that any kind of idea of exclusion, that one person is worthy and one person isn't worthy, inherently produces violence, produces pain, produces suffering. Yet somehow, and, and this is systemic in most religions, we just didn't get that memo. We just hang on to our interpretations of things and we don't grasp this, wait a second, I know that can't be true. I know that exclusion can't be true, but here's the cool thing. This time of year, we celebrate in the Christian world something called epiphany. And epiphany offers us an alternative to exclusion. And it's baked right into our Christian faith. 
right? It's baked right into the good news. This idea that there is something more to this God than a God that says, you're in and you're out. And Epiphany reminds us of that every year. Now, how many Epiphanites do we have in the room? I just made that word up. I don't have any idea what it is. You celebrate Epiphany. It's been a part of your like tradition, your life. Like you would, you can't imagine going a year without Epiphany. Nobody. Okay. Online? Some of you getting excited? No, this is not a huge part of our tradition, right? Let's make an assumption that high holidays, right? We don't really celebrate it, but it is a powerful, powerful principle. And I want to encourage us today a bit in this idea of epiphany and how we can leverage it to make sure that we're reminded of the good news, the truth about the good news. And so Epiphany is a festival that follows the 12 days of Christmas. So the 12 days of Christmas ends on January 5th. And on January, January 6th is Epiphany, the actual day. And Epiphany celebrates and honors the, the, the arrival of the Magi at the manger, right? And it celebrates what's represented by that. And what's represented by that is that Christ, the Word, the Logos, when John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word took on flesh, and the Word dwelt among us, we would call that the living Christ that is teeming through all of life. That this Christ took on flesh, made manifest, but the manifestation of the Christ came to the Gentiles. Super fancy word for everybody that's not a Jew, <laughs> right? So all people outside of the Jewish faith, when the Magi show up at the manger in Matthew chapter 2, this is where we see, wow, God is not one of exclusion, but God is one of inclusion. And the Magi remind us, an epiphany reminds us of that. Here's what Matthew says. Matthew says, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now, what you have to know about Magi is that these Magi, they weren't Jews. They were probably not monotheists. Most people weren't monotheists. Most Jews weren't even monotheists, to be honest with you. I mean, by, by the time of Jesus, they were. But in, in ancient Israelite religion, I mean, it was just unheard of. It was just, you couldn't imagine life uh, worshiping only one God. There was a, a view of multiple gods. That's why when you read the Psalms and you have Psalms that say, you are, you know, the highest of all gods, like that's not hyperbole. That's true. That that's, was the honest belief. Yeah, there are lesser gods. And God's always been breaking in saying, oh my gosh, this nonsense. Now, if you think you don't have other gods, you're, you have fooled yourself completely. We just call them different names. We call them MasterCard and Visa and, you know, we call it Disney World and things like that, right? We all have gods. I have my functional gods, right? And we all do. So don't think you're better than the ancients, right? And, and so the Magi show up. They're not monotheists. These are not people that go to temple. They don't offer the sacrifices to Yahweh, the Jewish God, they don't have any of that. These are, these are people that look to the stars, probably worship the stars at some measure, and they look for what the gods are doing in the world based upon these events that happen in the sky. They have no business at the manger, first of all. <laughs> I mean, we would think that, right? What are they doing here? They don't even know what they're doing. They don't even know what they're worshiping. They don't know God. But here they come. I mean, God gives them a star, and they show up. And it says that they were, they were wondering, where's the newborn king? They know that there's this star that's happening. They have some prophecy, something that they've heard. Some revelation has come to them in this story. Where have they come? We saw this star arise and we followed it here. And we've come to do homage, to worship, to pay respects. A few verses later, it says, behold, the star that they had seen at its rising preceded them. In other words, it went ahead. They just followed it. It kept moving until it came and stopped over the place where the child was. Any of the stars don't stop. That's kind of weird. 
star, it stops there. And so they come and they say, they, they're overjoyed when they see the star stop. And, and they enter the house and they saw the child with Mary and his mother and they prostrated themselves. They bowed down and they did him homage. They worshiped this king, right? No, I can guarantee you, they didn't worship this king as like God. They didn't know that. The disciples didn't even understand Jesus as God fully. I mean, that took hundreds of years for us to kind of formulate an opinion about. I mean, lots and lots of conversations to get to that one. So they're coming because this is some sort of royalty. There's some, and they're just, they're following what they know, what they knew at the time. So they come and they bring these gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, here's what's interesting. The Magi, they developed a whole like, just kind of chapter of their own in early Christianity. In fact, a few years ago, a scholar at Harvard found, uh, discovered this writing that's been called the Revelation of the Magi. It really doesn't have a name. There's only one copy of this thing in the world. One copy. Uh, and it's in Syriac. The language Syriac. And, and, and it sat, I think it sat in the Vatican Library, if I'm not mistaken, for probably hundreds of years because nobody really knew Syriac, ancient Syriac. It was like, oh, whatever, man. And he's, he's actually doing this, 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 uh, this scholar's doing their dissertation and is learning Syriac as part of his dissertation, comes across this, like, what is this all about? And he's like, I struck gold in academics, right? Like, nobody's written on this thing. I'm going to write about it. So he translates it for us. And it's the whole story of the Magi told from the first person. And it's this fanciful tale. It's absolutely wonderful. And it just, and it gives us a glimpse as to how much the Magi meant to early Christianity in certain parts of the world that their story and their journey had developed. And so there's all kinds of really beautiful teachings in this. And they encounter this star that speaks to them on this mountain that they've been charged with prophecies about what's going to happen. And, and they experience Jesus in a completely different form. And they follow the star and they arrive and they come and they encounter this Jesus and the star is there and, the, and, the, and this baby starts to talk to them, right? It's this wonderful tale. So much just beauty about understanding how important this was. And what makes this document so powerful is that it's one of the only documents in early Christianity that speaks to a belief that God was at work in the world. That God was not only concerned with the Hebrews, but that God was concerned with all people. And it holds very matter-of-factly that God is present, that the Christ is present and manifest in this world in all different ways. And while the fullness of God is manifest in Jesus, it basically presumes that it would be so arrogant of us to believe that God had nothing to do with the rescuing and the revelation of God's self to all people throughout the whole world. And so what this story really tells us and what the, the, the story that we have in the scriptures tell us is that the foreigner is welcomed at the manger. And that's a big deal in this time period. It's the outsider. These are not kinsmen. These are not people that are part of your tribe. They were the outsiders. It was what you would be afraid of. And this moment where the foreigner is welcomed is, is almost a culmination of hints that we see all throughout uh, our scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible, and the Christian scriptures. So one of the best ways to read the Bible, and many of you know this, some of you might not, but the best way to read the Bible is to look for threads throughout the, the Scripture. And that's, I think, where you find its inspiration. It's very easy to find one passage of Scripture and justify anything, anything at all. I was talking with somebody yesterday, we were talking about biblical masculinity. I was like, that biblical masculinity scares me. Right, right? like at the end of the day, like I just want to be really careful. And then we were kind of, we said, well, maybe like, Christ-like masculine. So, okay, now we're talking. 
But we have to be really careful because you could look at some of the crazy things in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and call that biblical masculinity and find out, well, we should just be, you know, killing wives. I mean, it's crazy what's there. So one of the best ways to read Scripture is to look for themes. And one of the themes in Scripture is that this God that is worshipped by the Hebrews is involved and is working in all of human history and is concerned with all the nations. If you go back to some of the earliest promises, these are not, it's not the earliest literature, but these stories take us back to kind of the earliest uh, stories about the beginning of the Hebrew religion to the figure of Abraham. Most maybe you've heard of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So Abraham is considered the father of the desert religions. Judaism, Christianity, Islam all share Abraham. We're part of the Abrahamic tradition. And, and Abraham is given a promise in Genesis. In Genesis 22, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And says that I'm going to do this work through you. I'm going to raise up. I'm going to give you a promised child. All these things. And, and, and Abraham responds in obedience. And in Genesis 22 verse 18, one of the first promises that God ever makes to humanity comes through Abraham. And it says, and in your descendants, all the nations of the earth will find blessing because you obeyed my command. So right at the very beginning where God is starting to reveal God's self, and God's always revealing God's self in new ways because we're evolving as people and we can understand more and more the reality of what God is doing in the world. And so as, as Abraham is being called into this new way of life, this new way of living that's gonna be different, God says, all the nations, all the nations. And so as we talk about this God that includes and, and is not exclusive, we see right at the very beginning that all the nations are included in the original promise. This promise of God's blessing, of God's presence was not specifically for Abraham and just Abraham's family, but it was all the families of the earth. And we see in Jesus, right, not only in the manger do we see this reality of inclusion, but Jesus, everywhere Jesus went, People that were not allowed to be included were there. Jesus was touching the untouchable, was eating meals with people he should never have eaten meals with. Oh my gosh, Jesus was a sinner. I mean, by the standard of the day, he was. He was an absolute sinner. He violated all kinds of laws to help people. He just wasn't concerned with this religion. While he was Jewish, he just wasn't concerned with the practices that stopped him from loving people. It's fascinating. And one of the most important stories we have, I think, on this theme of inclusion, of how God, the closer you get to God, the more and more you see the inclusion of God, is this moment where Jesus encounters a woman at a well. And we find this story in the Gospel of John. John's probably the latest gospel, by the way, the most developed theologically, the most like uh, kind of metaphorical in a sense, right? In, in John, you have, you know, Jesus doesn't, talking any parables in the Gospel of John. Uh, but there's all kinds of language about the mystery of God in Christ. And there's all kinds of language about eat my blood and you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the mystery of Jesus being born out in John. Like John has a very full understanding of Jesus as God. And it's probably why it's one of the latest pieces of literature we have about Jesus in the Bible. And so John is, telling, is, is, is retelling this story, the writer of John. And in this story, Jesus takes his disciples through an area that Jews would have avoided. They would have never wanted to go there because the Samaritans were there. And the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along. You might know that. They just didn't like one another. They worshiped God differently. They, they had different politics. Uh, they, they believed in 
that, that you should worship in this place. The Samaritans did, and the Jews believed you should worship in this place. Uh, the Jews had prim- been primarily the ones who won wars, and so they wrote the histories, and so they determined that Jerusalem was where you should worship, and this is where the temple's going to go. And it's all politics and money, by the way. I mean, nothing has changed. <laughs> like the whole argument about where to worship God, I hate to break the news to you, was all about politics and money. If we get everybody to worship in Jerusalem, that's where the money will flow. The temple system and structure was the economics of the day. And so there was this massive argument because the, the Samaritans were like, we're not going down. We're not spending our money at the temple there. We're going to worship God right here. This is where we worship God. This is the original site. So this has gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years. They despised one another. They did not like each other. So Jesus like, let's go hang out with the Samaritans, right? That's who Jesus was. So Jesus goes to this country and he sees this woman. She's at a well and they have this conversation and Jesus like speaks into her heart and her life. And she recognizes that there's something unique about him. And so she says, you must be a prophet. Clearly you're a prophet. She says, so answer me, Jesus. If you're a prophet, why do you all think we have to worship at your temple? Why are we arguing up here? Why do you think you're better than us? Why all this? And he's having this conversation. And, And Jesus looks at her and he says to her, believe me, believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. I mean, massive statement there. Huge statement. Un- I mean, this is not the statement of somebody who wants to go places <laughs> in, in the world, right? He is not climbing the Jewish ladder by making this kinds of claim. He says, this is coming. It's not going to matter. He says, but the hour is actually here. It's right now that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In other words, what Jesus is saying here, we bypass this and we don't want it because if we really understood it, we would really realize, well, I would realize like I'm out of a job. (laughs) Because what Jesus is saying here is, listen, the religious things, the principles that you do, it's not that they're not valuable. It's not that they don't offer good uh, things for your life, but it's not the point. The point is that what the Father is looking for is not that you have all the right religious principles and practice and you have all the right words and you can name it and there's this place or that place. No, it's about the Spirit of God in you. And it's about truth, your truth. And that might sound weird to you, but it is. It's about your experience. It's about your reality. It's about God at work in your life. And if you're coming to this God, this creator, Jesus calls this God Father, which is a beautiful invitation of intimacy. But the Father of all things, right? He's saying, listen, it's about your truth. Do you come with humility? Do you come with a spirit of desire, of honest desire? And God is present in that. It's not the religion. It's not where you worship. That stuff is nonsense, right? I mean, Jesus says that that they can have value and they can be important in your soul care, but it's not where it's at. It's in your spirit. And so even in Jesus, we find this, this promise that the religious others of our lives are included. Right? The religious others. And it's of our, it would be the same. If we could tell this story in a way that would be um, challenging or offensive to the Christian ear, it would be, oh, Jesus was hanging out over by a mosque. And he started to have a conversation with this, with this Muslim woman. And this Muslim woman started to say, well, what's the deal? Like, wh- wh- why we worship this way, and you all say we have to worship this way, and you call us names, and we go the same as Jesus, and oh, listen, listen, listen. And you pray six times a day, face this direction. You go to church on Sunday. You fast on this day, whatever. I'm telling you, there's a time coming where it's not going to matter because what the Father is looking for is those who worship in spirit and truth. Why? Because God is included, who's of all God's children, the whole of the planet. 
just seeking a heart, a heart that's turned towards God. And so much of our understanding of God is determined by our zip code. So much of our understanding of God and faith is determined by uh, what we get indoctrinated with as, as children and what we grow up, whether we grow up being indoctrinated that there is no God or whether we grow up being indoctrinated that God wants you to come forward and say, repeat after me and then let me push you over. Like there's just a whole strand of different traditions that we grow up in that determine that. And God is so gracious to say, well, I want to say to you is that all of it is really not essential. What's essential is my grace, because my grace has been made manifest in Jesus. And so Titus, this uh, book that we have in the New Testament, it's a letter. Titus really takes us to the extreme. And Titus is an interesting letter. We don't really know who wrote Titus. For a long time, everybody thought it was Paul. But then when critical scholarship kind of emerged onto the scene, we started to look at these things and we started to go, wait a second, this doesn't look like Paul. This doesn't sound like Paul. It probably is a little bit too developed in terms of church and, and like there's positions. Like when Paul is developing and writing, there's really no like organized church. There's just these little communities of people that are just trying to figure it out. But you would hard, you'd be pressed to really think that there were elders in this like as, as things were getting started. And so Titus kind of represents maybe a little bit more developed time period. So we're not really sure whether or not Paul wrote it, but what we see in this letter of Titus, in my opinion, is the great struggle. The great struggle between behavior and belief and understanding of who we are and moralism and what that looks like and what is the relationship between, between God and what Jesus did in the world and then our experience of Jesus and then the behavior that flows out of it. Because if you read Titus, you're like, oh, I can't do any of that stuff. I can't be that good. And, and that's just always the, that's always the tension in, in a life of faith, in my opinion. But there's something really powerful in this little two-chapter letter that we have that most of us never read or look at. But here's what it says in Titus chapter 2. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, saving all. Isn't that interesting? Not saving the ones that go to this church or that church. Not saving the ones that, you know, are, are Hebrews. Not saving the ones that are Romans. Not saving... The grace of God has appeared, literally taken so our eyes can see, and that's this Jesus, this grace of God appears in Jesus and saves all. That's in your Bible. I mean, I know we don't, that's hard for us because we love exclusion. We love to, to think about it as like, well, I'm, I've made my choice and I'm in and they're out. But what, what Titus tells us is that the grace of God has appeared, saving all. And we bypass that because in our exclusive mind, in our desire to be right, in our desire to be in and others to be out, we love to skip to the second part, that this grace of God trains us to reject godless ways and worldly desires and to live temperately, justly, and devoutly in this age. We like to skip to that part because then I get to define, oh, this is what it looks like to reject godless ways. If I can determine that and I can show you this, then I can, yeah, I'm surely saved because I'll determine what is a godless way of living. And I can then determine what are worldly desires that should be avoided. And I can define what it means to live temperately. And I can define what it means to live justly. And I can define what it means to live devoutly in this age. And then I get to say who's in and who's out. So we bypass it. But the reality is what Titus says to us is, hold on a second. It all begins with an understanding that the work of Christ is for all and saves all. And when we lean into it, when we live into it, when we accept in faith that this is what God is doing in the world, not because I'm part of a religion, not because I've done anything, it's just, it's the water I swim in, it's grace. I swim in that ocean and I can't do anything about it. 
I can, I can swim as fast as I want to, but I can't get away from it. I'm still swimming in grace. And what, it will, what will happen is when I learn to understand and accept that I'm swimming in grace, now, like that song says, I have a heart that's been bought by grace. And that begins to transform me. And not transform me into a religious person that follows all the religious rules, but it transforms me into a loving person. Transform me into Jesus who includes everybody. Right? That's what happens here. And so what we have to remember is that the grace of God saves all people, whether we know it or not. That's just the work of Jesus. That's what grace is. But we don't want it to be that way, right? If we can just be really honest. We, we always have to make it about us. We always do. Because it's just too good of news. <laughs> it's just too good to imagine that there's really nothing you could ever do to earn it, to live in it, to accept it. There's not, it, you're in it, you're saved. I, I think that's just the work of grace. The choice that we have is to trust it, is to believe it, to live in it, to let it flow through us, to let it transform us. Those are the choices we make. But that's not, but religion tells us, well, it's there, but here's what you have to do. <laughs> you have to say this prayer, or you have to get baptized this way, or you have to take communion this way, or you have to go through this class. And I just really believe what is trying to break through in Scripture, and it's in the tension, that's the beauty of Scripture is we get the tension. What's trying to break through is, eh, wrong, grace is grace. You can't not swim in it. You're in it. You can choose to deny it and believe it's not there and not live in it and live a lie but the truth is, grace became visible and saved all of us. And it trains us over time. Grace does. I hate to say it. It's not me. It's not this really good sermon. And I'm telling you, this is a good one. I'm just kidding. It's a joke, everybody. I know how bad these things are. I write them, right? You can know I didn't download it because it's bad. <laughs> But that's the beauty, but it's just too good to believe. And that's the point. Like God invites everyone because everyone is included in God's love. Like you, you can't not be invited. Remember that party we talked about, you get the invitation, right? You get the invitation, your kid is going to get invited to the birthday party. They may choose not to go, whatever, it's fine. This, this great image, it, it, we have it in the Bible, of this great image of a feast. And everybody's invited into this feast. Everybody's invited. Because everybody's included in God's love, in God's grace. But it's just too good to believe. So what, what, when Scripture says, how will they know unless they're told, unless someone announces it? We're announcing what is, not what might be. See, that's, that's where we've gone wrong. Now I'm going to preach, okay? <laughs> too often we announce what might be if you'll do this. If you'll just surrender your life, if you'll just say this prayer, if you'll just do this, then something will happen in you. And what I'm here to say is that is... That is our exclusivity talking. What is trying to break through through the gospel is, let me proclaim to you what is. And it's your decision as to whether you want to believe and live in that truth. That's the good news. That's the proclamation that is good news for everybody. That you are a child of God. That you are forgiven. That you are whole. This is the word of God for you. That, that our blindness can be taken away. That this is the work, this is God, and this is how generous God is. And so the, the Bible word for inclusion, right? We use this word inclusion a lot, right? We talk about our church, we talk about our culture, we talk about our mindset. The Bible word for inclusion, you know what that is? It's grace. 
Because inclusion says you're of value. You are to be a part of this. Not because of anything you've done, but because you breathe. Because you are made in the image of God. Because you exist. Regardless of your economics, regardless of your gender, regardless of your race, regardless of your sexuality, you are included fully. Not because of anything you've done, but because you are worthy of that. Because you are created by God in God's image. That's grace. That's, and, and so we talk in the Bible about grace, this favor given to us that's undeserved, right? That's the way we oftentimes talk about it. But it really just means everybody's in. Everybody's in. And as soon as you make it about what you do, as Paul would say, you've trampled on the message. You've trampled on the cross. You've rejected the cross. Because what Jesus is trying to show us, what God is trying to change is our minds about God. <laughs> like stop thinking about God this way. That's the beauty of it. So in your everyday life this week, I'm going to wrap this thing. I'm going to land the plane for you, okay? A couple of things about epiphany, all right? I want to encourage you to remind yourself, to remember, to walk into epiphany because epiphany invites everyone to the truth of their belonging. You belong. There's nothing you could do. You belong because the Father says so. How do you like that one? That, that's, I love what Jesus says. The Father this father of creation, it's a metaphor, right? It's not, God does not have a gender, but the metaphor of a father's covering, you belong because the father says so. There's this song out right now uh, that, that talks about being in the father's house. It says, check your shame at the door. It's not welcome anymore here in the father's house. And that's it, that's it, everybody. And so just let, allow Epiphany to remind you of the truth of your blind. What do you belong to? Is it Christianity? Eh. Is it a church? And eh. you just belong to God. <laughs> you belong to love. You belong to the fullness that is all of creation. That's the beauty of the gospel, that you are redeemed and rescued. And, and this lie that you aren't like God, and this lie that somehow there's something wrong with you or because you've done wrong things, like, give me a, no, God says, you are loved fully. And let's just journey in life together. Let's deal with it. And as you do that, right, you'll understand what it means to share this gospel. And Epiphany will remind you to go fearlessly share the good news. When the Magi left, according to the uh, revelation of the Magi, they went and they told everybody back home what happened about their experiences. They shared it fearlessly. And that's what it means. Like evangelism is, is, in my opinion, not getting people to believe or act or function the way I do. The true evangelism, I believe, is the proclamation of the good news that you're in, that you are loved by God, and that you'll never fully understand God. So don't get caught up on people in the way they understand God. But at the, at the ultimate source of truth and life and hope and love, you are accepted. And so the Magi return home, and they bring this message and this belief that God is at work all around them. And the most powerful thing that will happen in your everyday normal life, when you and I adopt a posture of uncomfortable inclusion, right? When we go against the grain of ourselves, our internal disposition to be exclusive, is we will learn one of the most powerful things that we could ever learn and walk out in our lives. And that is to walk humbly with God. So what it means to walk humbly with God is to include who God includes. <laughs> and that's everybody. Enemies, friends, foreigners, strangers, everybody. And, and nothing will teach you more humility than accepting the one that it's so easy for you to cast judgment on. There are, the, there are people in this world that it is so easy for me to show grace to and love and, and just 
and look and say, oh, I have so much compassion. I, I think the way they might think about God is off, but I have so much compassion for them. And usually they're in a position of oppression. You know, I have so much passion, but you want to know it's hard for me to offer that same compassion to the oppressor. But that's what I'm called to do because that person has been wounded too. And here's the power of it. Humility and inclusion, it heals the wounds of exclusive religion. It'll heal those wounds that people have experienced. And that's what we want to be as a church, just a place of healing. And the only way you're healed is by being accepted and being loved wholly. And we see this as early as the revelation of the Magi. It's developed, this idea that it's the power to heal the world. This is the work of Christ, right? So I'm gonna read a passage to you from this little writing. This is, for those of you that are like my biblicists in the room, like this is not the Bible, okay? This is not on par with the inspired word of God. But what it does tell us is that in, early, in its earliest pre-creedal Christianity, this is before we have the Bible, this is before we have, you know, kings telling us what to believe, <laughs> all right? <laughs> hint, hint on what I think about some of that stuff, right? In, in very pure form, beliefs that were being developed through experiences, this is what it says. This is from the words of the Magi in the imagination of this writing, the revelation of the Magi. And he spoke, this is the baby, Jesus, spoke these words and revealed to them, revealed to us concerning the place of salvation, the manger, and concerning the heavenly kingdom of the Father of majesty, the Lord of all who sent him for the healing of the worlds to cure their sickness because they could not be healed by one of the ancient prophets, but only through the will of the Son of perfect mercy. You see, our sickness is not uh, a physical sickness. Our sickness is there are these dispositions that we have that wound people. And the only way we were ever going to experience any way of salvation, any way of healing, was to see someone who refused to wound. And that was Jesus. We see it in his earliest writings, and that's the beauty of Epiphany. And so I hope that you hear God whispering to you, inviting you, and to celebrate Epiphany in some way. Throw an Epiphany party, Google it. There's some traditional baked goods you could do if you want. You actually can like buy these little baby Jesuses and bake them into a cake. And then like you bite the baby Jesus. I can't make this up. I cannot make this up, right? But throw an Epiphany party. I don't care what day you do it on. God doesn't care, right? Throw an epiphany party, but do something new as like God was doing a new thing, try, opening up our eyes to the inclusion of God. Include others in this. And all of this has the COVID asterisks, by the way, okay? All of it. Like don't include others. Like don't go throw some COVID super spreader event in the name of epiphany and say your pastor told you to do that. I'll deny that vehemently, right? So be safe, right? But include others in it, in this joy of it, and let it transform you. So we're going to wrap up the 12 days of Christmas with the song, We Three Kings, right? What other song do you finish this week with, all right? And we're going to open up our hearts to believe that God is still calling us, that God is still working through stars, that this is an enchanted world, that God is still ordaining powerful things and, and opportunities for us to experience and encounter the Christ in numerous ways that God is working all throughout this world, including all people in God's care and God's grace. And so this song kind of ends with this statement, let your light shine, let your light shine. Now we could think of this song being sung to God, asking God to let God's light shine, which is fine, I suppose. But the way I like to think about this is I like to hear God whispering to me, let your light shine. So let your light shine. Because it's a wonderful light. When my job isn't to get you to believe like me and think like me and act like me and I have to be right all the time, but when my job is just simply tell you, you are loved by the God of the universe. 
and you are included in his grace and that God can transform you and she will love you, whichever pronoun you use. That's the beauty of it. All right, enjoy.